everyone. Welcome to the Aspiring Snobs podcast. Um, if you're a frequent listener to this show, you'll know that we've done a lot of black and white movies. We are trying to explore movies from way in the past, you know, 30, 40, 50 years old. And in that, in that sense, John had the brilliant idea, um, while exploring a silent movie, we do a silent podcast. I thought, John, it, was a, I thought, explain- it, was, I thought it was a great meta-commentary on the nature of podcasts. Okay. And I thought, yeah. artistically, it would have been more sound, but... No. Mm-hmm. Some people thought it was a dumb idea. And that person, well, he's a Philistine. So, and there's nothing we can do about that. <laughs> no. I, that is until I experience more of silent cinema. Mm-hmm. This anachronism, this uh, <laughs> fossil of filmmaking. How dare you, sir? How dare That's you? not true. The okay. artist won Best Picture. Therefore, it was the best. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Just as a, a, a tribute. But, John, what do they have at the very end? Sound. They have sex. Thus demonstrating how important it is. And dialogue, that's true. That is very true. And John Goodman. All movies should have John Goodman, yes. Goodman in them. <laughs> All Academy Award Best Picture winners should have John Goodman in them. Or else they are disqualified. Absolutely. Yeah. Ten Cloverfield Lane, robbed. <laughs> no, I was going to see, how do we fit John Goodman into the King's speech? He could be like King Ralph or something like that. <laughs> he could have played uh, Winston Churchill. Oh, anybody could play. You and I could play Winston Churchill. <laughs> we just need to control the and girl. Yep. We will fight them on the beaches. We will fight them on the seas. Just tuck your chin in and, you know, push, put out a witty retort. Like, <laughs> if you were my wife, I would drink poison. Something like that, you know. <laughs> One of his classic lines. <laughs> He's Alfred Hitchcock with bad posture. That's what. That's yeah. all you need to do. Winston exactly, Churchill. yeah. But, John, we're not here to talk about The King's Speech or The Queen or Darkest Hour or <laughs> Dunkirk or one of a gazillion other movies in which uh, Winston Churchill appears. Mm-hmm. Although he doesn't appear in Dunkirk, but whatever. Whatever. Yeah. No, we're here revisiting our first Charlie Chaplin film, City Lights. John, I want to start with a little context. Okay. Because in 1931, like even even silent films were fossils at this point. Really? When when did yes, this jazz were. singer come out? Uh, 1927. Oh, okay. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, All right. this is two oh. years removed from King Kong. Ooh, but King Kong is a silent film. No, it isn't. It isn't. <laughs> John, how do you think they uttered that famous line? It was beauty killed the beast. I don't know. I could easily see that as a title card. <laughs> <laughs> No, King Kong is not a silent movie. So I'm wondering, do we judge this by the standard of like silent cinema in the early 30s, which was on the way out, mm-hmm. or do we judge it by the standards of film today? Um, well, I mean, all great films have a certain timeless quality. So regardless of whether the technology behind it is kind of anachronistic, I think if the story kind of holds up and the characters and the themes still kind of hold up, then the movie itself should hold up. And I think City Lights holds up quite exceptionally. I think this is a fantastic film. Really? Yeah. I loved it. So you say, you think it lives up to its reputation as Charlie Chaplin's crowning achievement and one of the greatest movies of all time? Um, I don't know. Again, this is my first Charlie Chaplin film, so I can't really say if it's his greatest or not. But I definitely think this belongs in the oeuvre of greatest films of all time. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. I mean, by those standards, I found it slightly disappointing. Really? Yes. <sighs> I, a huge disappointment. I, I, a massive disappointment. I, I shake my fists in rage. Really? Oh, no. I mean, yeah. Just as the story progresses, I could find my affection for the characters weaning. Mm. I didn't buy the contrivances. And what it's really building to is this, is this uh, climactic reconciliation between the two characters who have been romancing this whole film. And by then, I just kind of like lost all affection for the film and just didn't really 
didn't really kind of like buy that moment or by then it was too late and everything that kind of preceded it just wasn't didn't didn't live up to that hmm didn't live up to that scene is what i should say i mean i will definitely uh give you a little credence that the movie kind of ends a little ambiguously it doesn't end on kind of a perfect wrap-up bow tie that you've come to expect from films but i think that's what kind of makes the experience a little richer is the fact that it doesn't give you that kind of super satisfactory answer that you might be looking for well not that not that it ends ambiguously that i don't mind it's that we don't know what i what i see of the tramp i don't really like that much Hmm. and what do we see of the woman john how is she characterized well she's just this perfect angelic human being who just um just brings light and good into the world Absolutely. Yep. Although she happens to be blind, and love is indeed blind, huh? Oh, wow. (laughs) Yeah, how about that? I didn't see that connection. Yeah. I saw the connection between her and the drunk man, how they, you know, don't fully recognize (laughs) Charlie Chaplin's character throughout the movie, but... No, that's... I think that's where my complaints start, is in kind of the characterization, because this was a... People had affection for the the star of the movie, the Tramp character, Mm -hmm. beforehand, and I liked him initially... The opening scene, he's introduced, like, you know, sleeping on this monument. Um, that's a, that's another problem, too. This was, uh, to, again, to give it context, this at a time when talkies were taking over. Like, the, the Pandora's box had opened. There's no more room for Buster Keaton and, and Charlie Chaplin silent shenanigans anymore. And so, to kind of work around that, this opening scene has a little, like, uh, Sims dialogue. <laughs> I guess that's a good way to put it. It has a lot of like, like they sound like kazoos. Yeah, and I'm wondering, is there another way they could have conveyed this opening ceremony without that, without the need for dialogue or again, fake dialogue? <laughs> well, I guess what I admire about it is the fact that because it's a silent movie, they do have to rely a lot more on show, don't tell. And how do you convey a character being blind? Especially at this time period, it's like where probably not a lot of people know a blind person or haven't come to expect how you portray a blind person on screen. And so I do kind of well, yeah, appreciate not, that. Yeah, I'm not saying that the, that the whole movie was, you know, a, a terrible disappointment because mm-hmm. there was no sound or music, you know. Because <laughs> there's no dialogue and, the, and they had to do it through title cards. I'm not saying it's a, it's a massive disappointment from that regard. I do... I like the moments where the story is told visually, like the introduction between our tramp character and the blind woman mm-hmm. and their little effect on the street while she's selling. Those little, the little back and forth they do when she perceives him to be a man of leisure, you know, getting out of his car or something like that. Mm-hmm. Like, that worked fine. But it was other moments where they, they really, like, desperately needed sounds. Like, A, that introduction with the fake dialogue. Mm-hmm. Another thing where he gets, he gets hired at one point to raise money for her rent. Mm-hmm. And, like, the way, again, that's all done in title cards instead of, like, handed out visually. I thought, like, how do you do that visually? Like, maybe you show him entering a storefront where it says, like, uh, now hiring. And then the sign turns around and, you know, it's like, you know, <laughs> uh, Irish need not apply. <laughs> and then he, like, blocks out in a uniform. Like, why, why couldn't we do that instead of a title card, you know? Well, there is one gag in the movie that relies completely on sound. And it's very contrived, but he's at a party and he swallows a whistle. There's that, yeah. There's there's that one. Mm-hmm. Let's let's talk about these parties, huh? <laughs> okay. It was the Roaring Twenties. Let's, let's get on to the other. Yeah, let's another, get on to the other. An, another character. I didn't. Another reason why on. this movie's a little anachronistic is the fact that it takes place after the Depression, but it still kind of takes place during the Roaring Twenties. You get a lot of well, drunkards. Some, yeah, and, some characters. Yeah, are, over the top. Are living that. Yeah, yeah living that fantasy. Mm-hmm. But. Let's let's get into that character specifically. He's 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 credited as the eccentric millionaire, <laughs> when really manic, depressive, severe alcoholic, you know, millionaire probably would have sufficed. <laughs> Fair enough. He's he's introduced as as blindingly drunk and and wanting to commit suicide by not hanging himself, but by <laughs> tying a rope around his neck, tying the other end to a cinder block, and throwing himself into the river. It's not even a cinder block. It's a literal rock. <laughs> <laughs> Which I I. Listen, I'm not a sailor. Like trying to tie knots around <laughs> things, even even structurally built things, is mm-hmm. hard. I can't imagine doing it around a rock. Yeah. Well, you know, in these these days you wouldn't be able to do a kind of gag like that in this PC culture. <laughs> <laughs> we can't make fun of people trying to kill themselves. Yeah. But the the main idea of this storyline or this this plot line is to basically establish this gag where he only recognizes Charlie Chaplin's tramp character when he's drunk. And when he recognizes him, he's like, my friend! They're like, 
best friends. But as soon yeah. as he sobers up again, he's like, who is this man? Why are you here? Get out, get out, get out. Yeah, but it doesn't tie closely with to what our main plotline is, which is the romance between the tramp and the blind girl. Not necessarily, but thematic-wise, there's a lot going on that I think you missed. <laughs> okay, go ahead. The whole point of the tramp character is he's a study in contrasts. He is a low-status character who thinks of himself as a high-status character. That yes, is we the, see that early on. That is the that's major what, that's appeal what I about the movie. of yeah. the Tramp, is the fact that he wears tattered clothes, but he always doffs his cap and always carries around a cane. He thinks that he is a high-status character without realizing that he is a low-status character and always tries to upkeep his dignity even when he's you know looking the fool. And so the whole point of the movie and the themes that it's playing with is rich versus poor. And you have this poor blind woman who can't make a good living because she's blind. And you have this rich character who's just drunk all the time. And the contrivances on how they kind of interact with the tramp. So there's a there's a thematic reason for these two kind of stories to kind of intersect. But you're right. It, like, the, way that's, the ways that they do intersect are absolutely contrived. No doubt about that. But again, no coincidence, no story. <laughs> That's just basic storytelling. Well, no, coincidences should make the should initiate the plot rather than resolve it. And instead, what we see is uh, again, it's like they're two. It's like they're living in two completely different worlds, though. Yeah. That's the point. There is one's one rich, where, one's poor. No, 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 no. Not, not on a thematic level. I mean, the two plot lines are, are completely independent from one another. Like, why not? I, I get the intention that you want to do this thematically, but why not have it play out in the story as well, into an entertaining story? And it doesn't do that. I guess that's instead we Instead, the tramp is just wandering the street, and the eccentric millionaire is drunk again. He's like, hey, my friend, let's have a house party. Mm-hmm. You know, it has nothing to do with his romance Whereas later, as you said, this this blind woman is uh, very poor. She can't. She and her mother can't afford their rent. Mm-hmm. So what that motivates him to enter a bo- enter a boxing match and to win the money that, to help pay her rent. And that, like, it goes back to what we say about storytelling and ending each scene with a but or therefore. In those moments, the story kind of works. But in the other half, it, again, it feels like a short that they just kind of like tacked on to it. And say like, oh, and then they can argue, oh, it's you know, thematically, it's about you know, uh, study a study in contrast, you know, between the higher classes and the lower. The classes. haves and have-nots. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and I don't buy it. Well, you know, the 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 other reason why this is such an anachronism is that poor rich man is probably taxed to hell. Like he needs tax cuts so he can create <laughs> yeah, jobs. Absolutely, that's the first thing he's going to do with those tax cuts. He's like, I got to hire more people. And this blind woman, she comes down with the consumption or the grief, and she expects us to pay for it. It's ridiculous. Exactly. <sighs> no, you know what? Don't be born blind then. Exactly. <sighs> you know, I guess but that's how you can also tell that this uh, spoiler spoiler alert for eighty-year-old uh, <laughs> movies, but. <laughs> We do find out later there's a procedure that will cure her blindness. Mm-hmm. And that's how you know it's in Europe, because obviously she just gets it for free. <laughs> well, you're right about, like, part of what I was expecting, and I'm kind of surprised that I didn't go with this, is I thought for sure that the rich man and the blind woman would end up together. <laughs> I didn't expect them to wind up together. I, I expected him to become like a he- turn heel or something like that and play the villain mm. and expose to her like, uh, oh, this tramp character, you think he's a millionaire? No, I'm the millionaire. This guy, this man's a fraud. Yeah, but again, like he doesn't know about the blind girl. And I was fully expecting like, you know, the tramp to walk up to her and be like, hey, recognize me? It's me. And she'd be like, I don't know you. Go away. And then the drunken, you know, rich guy would walk up and be like, hey, and she would think that that was him. I mean, so it what, develops into a yeah, it would develop into a relationship, and again, okay, it's or barely, a romantic rival, yeah, barely touched on. But the reason why the drunkard is so sad and depressed and trying to kill himself is because it's implied his wife has just left him. It implied? I didn't get that. Oh, really? It's 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 thrown off on one little line where the butler says yeah. like, "Your wife has come by for her baggage," implying that, oh yes, yeah, the now wife, I remember. yeah, the yeah, wife right. has moved out. So I. I guess that's a nice little story touch. I guess they logically explain that. But, mm-hmm. John, where does this uh, eccentric millionaire's story terminate? Like, what happens? Uh, he <laughs> wakes up sober and doesn't recognize the tramp and kicks him out. But, I mean, come on. Who hasn't woken up with a homeless man in their bed after a drunken <laughs> night? Who are we to judge? That's the, Yeah, that's the second time it happens. <laughs> and, again, it resolves nothing. <laughs> 
he wakes up he wakes up sober and is like, who is this man? Obviously not remembering a thing from the night before. Wonders who is this man in the weird bowler hat and Hitler mustache. <laughs> I shouldn't. I didn't want to go there. You know, again, it's not it's not Charlie Chaplin's fault. Hey, he directed the great uh, uh, dictator. Okay, that more than makes up for it. Absolutely, that's true. Yeah, and it's not his fault that you know history's greatest monster adopted his mustache and <laughs> ruined it for everybody. Now, if you had a Hercule Poirot mustache, oh, that would be terrible. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Well, it would obscure his face, you know. That is true. Good point. That big, bright face. Mm-hmm. I should say, I like what you said at the. I like that you pointed out at the beginning. Yes, that that's where my affection with the tramp lies. In that, a, again, he is essentially a homeless person. However, he has these kind of pretensions mm-hmm. to being a, a man about town. You know, yeah. swinging his cane, doffing his cap to everybody. Mm-hmm. And the the first half of the story really plays with that. It's just the latter half, and his time with the the millionaire has nothing really to do with that. Uh, one thing I didn't really didn't like the movie is are there are these two party scenes. Mm-hmm. One, initially they it, it's after he saves his life they uh, get cleaned up I believe and then go out for a night in the town, mm-hmm. and that's just a set piece for more gags. Like um, he gets served spaghetti, but there are also streamers, and he he uh, Charlie Chaplin accidentally accidentally starts eating a streamer instead of a spaghetti. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, the floor is slippery for some reason. I don't know if that was supposed to be ice or what. Yeah, but... uh, did they dance on ice floors back in the 1920s? That seems I, I, I don't know. Very inefficient. And then later, he again, he just runs into the drunk millionaire mm-hmm. out on the street and says, "Like, hey, I'm having a house party, my friend. You know, come on in." Mm-hmm. And the problem, the problem I had with that is those are two scenes that you could literally put anywhere, or completely cut out, and they have nothing to do with the story. Okay, so I kind of understand where you're coming from, and I to- completely agree that this movie is just kind of a gag fest, but I think of that as a feature, not a bug. And that's why I don't really mind it so much, because again, like, for me, I was going and expecting, like, a Three Stooges level farce, which this movie kind of is. But again, it has that stuff going on thematically that kind of makes it a little more richer. Yeah, but why can't it be bold? Like, <laughs> if it aspires to greatness or has the reputation of greatness, why can't those two things kind of coalesce? The emotional romance that's going on, which I will agree, that's that's finally directed between the close-ups and their mm-hmm. and their and the performances that go on between Charlie Chaplin and this blind woman. But why can't that live in the same space as the the goofy gag a minute, you know, silent movie that it's also aspiring to be? Because, like, this was the 1930s. Movies hadn't been perfected yet. <laughs> I, I know, but if we're going to talk about it 80 years later, like, you know, why don't we talk about Charlie Chaplin's other Tramp films? Well, or, we still know, talk about cave paintings, even though, obviously, we've gotten much better at painting. <laughs> I, no, those have historical merit. I understand that, but... You don't this, think this movie has historical merit? I think well I think Charlie Chaplin himself has historical merit but what uh, this was going to be my other question to you what technically does this movie you know lend to the history of film cuz uh... I see yeah. <laughs> mm, that gag with the uh, rising elevator out of the uh, um, the crown <laughs> sidewalk the yeah, sidewalk that, yeah that I didn't understand that was kind of that was kind of cool and uh, the river scene they built that whole river in the studio that was kind of cool yeah <laughs> I will say, I, I did admire the production of it, because, again, this takes place on city streets, and it really does look like a city street. Mm-hmm. They really do fill the frame with extras. and. and well, he had that United Artists money. Yeah. <laughs> well, he had his own, yeah, he had his own production company at this point, or something like that. They poured a, a million and a half dollars into this, which in 1930 was unheard of. Mm-hmm. So, from a production standpoint, yes, it works, um, but it's still, like, a little too staged. I mean, I've, I will say, 
it's too much of it takes place in that wide that you expect from a from a 30s audience because again they didn't know any better mm-hmm. but i do wish it took place more in close-up and we did get to characterize our characters a little bit better like i can't now in my head i can't even picture what the eccentric millionaire looks like because we never see him in close-up it's always a wide shot and he's always you know gallivanting around throwing his arms up and chewing the scenery that is true, yeah. I mean, he's more of a physical presence than, like, Charlie Chaplin, who would mm-hmm. get those close-ups, and you see the fake eyebrows and the bad mustache, and, you know, he's, like, twerking his face and things like that. Um, but again, like, maybe that wasn't the actor's strength, so maybe that's why he didn't mm-hmm. really do that, I guess. <laughs> I mean, you do get a lot of close-ups with, like, you know, uh, frowning angry people, like the person who's trying to eat a sandwich, and he swaps out his meat with, or his cheese with soap. yeah. I did want to talk about that sequence because it, it kind of pulled me back into the movie. Really? Yeah. <laughs> For me, that was like the most Three Stooges-esque moments. <laughs> he's like, well, he's got to get a job so he can help pay for her thing. Oh, look, he's a zookeeper now or something. <laughs> but it's it seems to be actually telling a story with a goal that we're working toward. <laughs> <laughs> with the boxing, yes, I totally buy that. But the whole, like, shoveling poop off the sidewalk, I didn't know. I was like, uh, this gag is a little too broad for me. You don't get that slapstick like you get in the boxing scene. Oh, that boxing scene. <laughs> oh, yeah, we should also explain the boxing scene, which has its has its uh, highs and lows, I will also admit. <laughs> uh, again, let's follow normal story logic. He mm-hmm. loves this woman and wants to help pay for her rent and keep up the act that he's a millionaire. Mm-hmm. So he says, like, I'll help you pay the rent, but he just lost his job. How is he going to do that? Well, he comes across a, a boxing match. You know, uh, a winner will get 50 bucks, but he conspires with the other boxer. Hey, you let uh, somebody will let the other one win. Nobody will get hurt, and we'll split, the, split it evenly. So we'll each get $25. You know, it seems like a pretty good deal. Mm-hmm. But here, here's a low in the scene in that they have to contrive a way to break off this agreement and have the guy run away. Yeah. And the way and they so do he, it is through a telegram, a telegram that just says, yeah, the, the police are after you. Get out of there. <laughs> you know, hitherto unmentioned and never brought up again. No. And then the next person that they bring into box, the tramp, obviously, is having none of this. And mm-hmm. I, uh, there's this weird gag where, like, the tramp is trying to be nice, but he's coming off as, like, too fey. So, obviously, the other boxer thinks he's gay. Yeah. So he's like hitting on him. It's a little weird. Yeah, this is where we learn that the tramp is a deviant homosexual. Because <laughs> he wakes up in bed with a, an eccentric drunk millionaire. Could be a sugar daddy situation. But he's know. in love with a flower girl. <laughs> this is true. But John, I mean, come on. You wake up in the same bed as an eccentric millionaire who claims you're just friends. I quote. wish. Are you kidding? <laughs> Again, sugar daddy situation. And then he starts batting his eyelashes at this other guy. Mm. Come on. What, what are we supposed to infer here? Yeah, I did like the gag with the uh, good luck charms, though. Yeah, so that's that's probably the strongest gag, mm-hmm. and one of the few moments where I did actually laugh out loud, <laughs> or LOL, as the kids say. <laughs> I was LMAFOing on on my. Well, okay, let's not go that Whatever. far. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but he, uh, one of the boxers, has all these good luck charms. He has a, a horseshoe and a. Um, a lucky rabbit's foot. Yeah, so it looks Char- like yeah, it looks like Charlie Chaplin's about to get killed in the ring. Mm-hmm. So, so he, he borrows this. these things, and then we see that boxer who brought the good luck charms go out and then lose immediately, lose and get dragged back unconscious. Yeah, which okay, the boxer is black, and that is probably the least realistic part of this movie. The <laughs> Negro boxer would not lose at this time period. Let's be real. No, another huge logical inconsistency here. <laughs> They're, they are clearly heavyweights, and they seem to be the undercard. Mm-hmm. The heavyweight bout is not the undercard. It's rarely, if ever, the undercard. So that's that just ridiculous. Just <laughs> completely took me out of the movie. Absurd. This movie's absurd. But that's a, that's also where we other scene where we raise the stakes a little bit, because the victorious heavyweight boxer comes back into the ring, and he bumps into the, the uh, fighter that Charlie Chaplin's about to face. And the fighter that Charlie Chaplin is about to face, even though he's smaller, he just, you know, it gives him one punch and the heavyweight box is immediately out. <laughs> so again, that's a, again, that's a really, it's a really good, to that point, a really well-constructed sequence with yeah. really solid jokes. Land, landing some really solid comedy punches, you could say. hey No, that's probably the highlight of the movie is the boxing scene. And the, like, 
doing a little research, that's usually how Charlie Chaplin wrote these movies. It, he would come up with a kind of skit-level situation for the tramp to be in, yeah. and he would write around that. Mm-hmm. Hence why this movie feels kind of flimsy and, again, like, very contrived. It feels like just kind of a loose collection of skits, literally fading to black and then fading back up yes, again. Yes, which is, I abhor. I mean... Mm. But again, that's how movies were made back nice. then. That's why I'm forgiving it. All right. I, I, well, John, another thing I, I wanted to point out with the boxing scene that I just mm-hmm. thought was a little weird. So it's it's really well done in this kind of dance that they do. Charlie Chaplin's trying to avoid getting hurt by this boxer, so he starts dancing behind the referee. And that's mm-hmm. all really well choreographed. But then I, I see the tramp throw a punch, and mm-hmm. it just made me feel weird. It reminded me of that... Um, that rule that Chuck Jones, the creator of, or not the creator, but the animator behind all the uh, Looney Tunes. Mm-hmm. Bugs Bunny. Yeah, Bugs Bunny. Uh, he had this rule. He imposed a lot of discipline on his cartoons. And one rule that he had is that Bugs Bunny can never instigate that is true. a fight. Mm-hmm. And it was it, it was just so weird. Like, again, I have, you should have such affection for the tramp, but here he is, like, like throwing punches, not in self-defense. And I just, again, it was like, it's yeah, like but- I should have affection for this character, but... Yeah, these these little moments are kind of taking me out of that. Uh, I mean, but it's a boxing match. <laughs> this is true. And yeah, what are you again, supposed to do? I could just he's be the weird gonna, one. Yeah. Yeah, he's he's not gonna rope a dope him, Greg. Come on. Well, I rope a dope, but I was looking for like a more clever solution out of it. Um. Maybe. Yeah. I I guess that's fair. Yeah. I was hoping that you know it would be like kind of more of a slapstick contrived reason on how he won. Like, he accidentally, like, slips, knocks the bell, the bell falls over and hits the other boxer in the head, and he just collapses or something like that, you know? Just, like, yeah. something accidental would cause him to win. But, yeah, I don't even or remember. Or he, he accidentally hits the ref or something like that, you know? Mm-hmm. Which I, contrived both like that, of them yeah. do at one point, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that should have disqualified the match right there. Completely unrealistic. Five sins added. <laughs> But John, what's what's what is all this really leading up to? Well, it's leading up to him eventually getting the money for uh, the Flower Girl's rent, but also kind of hard to justify because he basically just steals it. Yeah, I mean he has a right to it, but again, going back to the millionaire only recognizes him when he's drunk. As soon as the millionaire sobers up again and he sees Charlie Chaplin with his money, he assumes that he robbed him. Yeah. And again, like, very contrived. There's also, like, two other... Oh, I forgot about that scene. Yeah, I, yeah, I just there's... wanted to get straight to the end, but you're yeah, right. There's... there's two other robbers, and they're also trying to rob the rich man, and, like, it's this whole kind of, like, farcical thing where the tramp ends up with a gun, but he doesn't really know how to use it, and he ends up giving it back to the cop, and it's... Yeah. Like, I wish they could have figured out a more streamlined way for him to, like, get the money. But the reason why he needs to have stolen the money is so that he can get it to her... And then get arrested immediately afterwards. So yes. that enough time has passed. She's disappointed that he never returned. She can regain her eyesight. So that mm-hmm. we can kind of get to that final climactic scene you're talking about. Where the tramp and the flower girl come back together. They came together, as it were. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah and I think in terms of people's affection for this movie, I think it comes in, that, in those final moments. Like you mm-hmm. have a really strong ending and it somehow, you know supersedes everything that came before it Mm -hmm. and here again i just found it a little disappointing or just a tad lacking Mm -hmm. because she recognizes him she sees it as a tramp and there's no kind of acknowledgement that like either oh you you really were a millionaire or you really weren't a millionaire or you were a millionaire and then in the year we've been separated you lost all your money and now you're wandering the streets Mm -hmm. so there's no kind of like acknowledgement of that and instead I think what we're supposed to see is like, oh, like love has conquered all. She recognizes him and they can continue their relationship in spite of this, this hindrance that was between them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Still, I, like, 
Uh, well, I, I was, was expecting a more kind of tragic ending where she wouldn't recognize him, period, and the tramp would kind of like wander off defeated. Okay. <laughs> That's what I was kind of expecting, which I thought would have been a much darker ending. But instead, yeah. they kind of like split the difference. They recognize each other, and, you know, he gives a nice little coquette smile, and she's kind of taken aback by all this, but it never implies that yeah. this is going to continue or something like that. It ends very ambiguously. Yeah, exactly. Well, that's what I didn't like. If you said split the difference, it's kind of like satisfying mm-hmm. nobody. <laughs> like, either we don't see the continuing adventures of the Tramp, or we don't see them, you know, fully get together. I guess so, yeah. And that kind of really dissatisfied me. Not that, you know, I'm completely opposed to ambiguous endings, because I'm a dummy. <laughs> you know, oh, you just didn't get it. Uh, I don't know about that. <laughs> I think you're a dummy. Thank you. <laughs> But again, like you said, it tried to find this compromise, and instead it just let me completely unsatisfied. In spite of how you know good those close-ups are, and their and just how little, or what you see in their facial expressions, mm-hmm. that's very well done. But again, it's that's not in service of of anything, or at least not in service of what I'm really looking for in terms of you know the top high, highest level of cinematic achievement. Well, again, I don't know why you're expecting the top-level cinematic achievement from 1931. Because that's what its reputation is. <laughs> I think this is a very Again, good my film. expectations are high, and they deservedly so, if this is one of the top 20 greatest American films of all time. Mm. See, I, I grade it on a curve. And I think this is a fun little romp. Again, thematically rich. Has a point to it. Despite being just kind of like a little fun gag fest, a nice little distraction for the, you know, throw a nickel in there, get a hot dog, a Coney Island and a knee high. Um, But I, you know, I thought it was fun and I laughed. I was having a good time. So how can I say no? Okay. Well, difference, difference of opinion. then. (laughs) Greg is just a misery guts. He loves his European films where everyone ends up dead by the end. (laughs) That's not true. They don't, they don't wind up dead. They just walk off into the middle distance (laughs) and then cut to black and... Directed by the Dardan brothers, you know, something like that. <laughs> okay. No, but I I will say even by those standards, I think I'd prefer Buster Keaton for a, you know, laugh a minute gag fest. Mm. Yeah, but again, do you get that kind of like thematic richness from Buster Keaton? Did he well, have no, anything? you don't. That's yeah. Thing, yeah. Did you get any comments about socioeconomic status from Buster Keaton? I don't think so. I've, you don't get a lot from this movie either, but... Uh, excuse me, it's there. <laughs> That's what's important. It's at least there. It's... It's barely there. It's yeah. token, you know. Yeah, you think everything's token. Yep. Come on, John. You gotta, you gotta approach it to its fullness. You gotta show miserable French or Belgian people. <laughs> but this is still the Roaring Twenties. Hot cha cha cha. Rag It's not the Roaring Twenties. The depression's on. There are food lines. Where are well, the no. food lines? <laughs> when, when he started making the movie, it was the Roaring Twenties, and then they had to stop production because the depression hit. And so they had to, then they continued. So obviously they didn't really change anything about the setting of the movie, unfortunately. Yeah, that's true. Maybe I should be more forgiving for the way this movie came together or didn't. Yeah. It was a long, protracted production process. They were going to replace the actress at one point. Mm-hmm. He fired the actress who was playing the flower girl and he was going to completely reshoot everything with her, but then it was too much money. So then he ended up having paying double her salary so she would come back. Yeah, and Charlie, Charlie lost that one. <laughs> Yeah, a lot of interesting history in this movie. Mm. I mean, Charlie Chaplin's an interesting character, so I'm kind oh, yeah. of, I'm, I'm, I'm a little, well, that's why we call this uh, podcast Aspiring Snobs. I'd never seen a Charlie Chaplin film until this movie. Yeah, I'd never seen a full Charlie Chaplin. I'd seen shorts, same with Buster mm-hmm. Keaton. Like, these are little 20 to 30 minute, or maybe 40 minute, you know, kind of gag a minute skits, essentially. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Um, I'm thinking, like, uh, what was the last Buster Keaton movie I saw? Sherlock Jr., which is only 24 minutes long. So, yeah, I mean, we're getting we're getting a good education in, in silent cinema and what really drove the movie business back in the 20s, but I, I don't know. Yeah, this seems like a kind of swan song, a swan song for it, which maybe also kind of belies its, its reputation as, you know, an all-time great because, you know, they didn't, they didn't make movies like this anymore. At uh, that I guess point. that's true, yeah. I mean, if you're looking for, like, the pinnacle of slapstick silent film this is probably one of the top and that's why it's kind of celebrated or lauded yeah because it's like of all the slapstick silent movies you could watch this is probably the best one yeah and it's invoking probably a lot of nostalgia for it in the same way the artist did you know yeah although we haven't seen modern times yet we should at least check out modern times before we make that assumption that's true maybe on a future episode yes (laughs) that and buster keaton's the general (laughs) what's that one about uh, uh, Buster Keaton plays a, a general. That's the one he he's on a train trying to stop a train, and that's where all these impossible, not impossible gags, but oh. uh, it's a marvel. It's a marvel of cinema. It's also included in Roger Ebert's great movies collection. Okay. Yeah. Well, I mean, like, I don't know. Charlie Chaplin doesn't obviously get as much credit as Buster Keaton does because Buster Keaton was like the Jackie Chan of his day, like, yeah, really destroying his body. Yeah. For these gags. <laughs> yeah. But then again, he never reached the emotional resonance to say the final scene in this movie. Of course, yeah. I mean, that's something else to be said. We kind of we say about this. I say that baselessly again, having seen <laughs> literally one full feature-length Charlie Chaplin movie. Yeah, I mean, we've talked about this before, especially with uh, the apartment. Revisit that one now. Check out the back catalog, completely yes. free. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of these movies, I feel like, are celebrated because they have like really good endings, and oh, it's yeah. like everything else about them are forgotten. Both those movies also have gags about people killing themselves. Ha ha ha! What a joke. <laughs> Well, it's because I think they have a hard time introducing stakes into a story. Mm-hmm. Literally, I life and death true. stakes. And, mm-hmm. you know, and I think they found out, you know, not, not every story necessarily needs that. So, <laughs> Especially if it's a farce like this. Exactly. So, What's wrong with a little farce? Yeah, what's wrong with it? Again, we don't... <laughs> let's, let's approach the, uh, also the issue of suicide with a little more sensitivity. <laughs> not just have like, oh, my life left me. Why does I end it now? <laughs> Oh, well, might as well tie myself to a rock by the neck. Yeah. A lot of neck-based gags in this one. Yeah. I forget I forget in the apartment, what does he do? Like, wants to shoot himself at, you know, make-out point or something? I guess so. Well, it was probably better off than living in the 30s or so. <laughs> but he was a millionaire, Greg. He was a man about town. This is true. All those raucous parties. How could you not be happy with all those raucous parties? Mm-hmm. With all those superficial friends. Yeah. He probably, yeah, he probably just wanted to blow all the money before his wife could take it. And oh, good point. Yeah, they probably didn't have prenups back then. Why, Again, I, I say baselessly. We should be script doctors, really. We should absolutely. Again, what Hollywood? We're giving you gold here. Exactly. <gasps> New podcast idea: the script doctors. Yes. We revisit the old movies and improve them story-wise. Exactly. Bam! So many sound drops will be perfect. Make so many gags about you know. High we're five. on this. We're on this. <laughs> Check out the script doctors coming next week. <laughs> Ew, let's give it a let's give it a month. Let's plan this. <laughs> what? No, the future has no time for planning. Podcasts need to come out now. Absolutely, it's the immediacy. Yes, I'm scribbling in the margins right now. <laughs> like some sort of tax bill. That's a tax. Yeah, that's a tax cut joke. Politics, everybody. Okay, check that off, and we are done. All right. So, All right. Wait, we're not done yet. No, wait. Well, yeah, we have one more item on our on our agenda here. Well, two more items oh, because we got to give them that sweet, delicious, creamy <laughs> spotlight. 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 It's time, Robbie. It's time. Let's uh let's move past that as quickly as possible. Okay, John, what do you have for spotlight? Hopefully, it's not as uh, um deeply dis- dis- disturbing as that was. <laughs> Um, I saw this movie a few weeks ago, but I haven't gotten a chance to recommend it yet, but I thoroughly enjoyed it. It's the Kenneth Branagh version of Murder on the Orient Express. Yes. John, explain your biases first. <laughs> okay. I love Kenneth Branagh. Mm-hmm. I think he's one of the, again, with Kenneth Branagh, it's a lot like Charlie Chaplin. He's a study in contrasts. <laughs> well, not a study in contrast, more of a study in excess. That's That seems to be why you really admire his work. <laughs> well, no, it's, what's interesting about him is that obviously he loves opulence. He loves ornamentation. He loves Shakespeare. He loves all these kind of erudite, finer things. 
But when it comes to his directing style, he's like a six-year-old banging action figures together. He's like, oh, okay. And then we'll put on the best costumes and we'll recite the to be or not to be speech. But then the camera will whoosh around like this and that and the other. It's like like Baz Luhrmann with more class. (laughs) That's a great analogy. Yes. Now, granted, I don't like Baz Luhrmann, but I, I will no, give, I hate Baz I will Luhrmann. Give, yeah, well, no, give. that's what. Okay, fine. Let me reiterate because I hate Baz Luhrmann too. Let me reiterate that he's Baz Luhrmann more palatable. Yeah. And so you have Murder on the Orient Express coming to like, again, when Kenneth Branagh cares, he really cares, and he really puts his heart and soul into this, and you can definitely tell he's put his heart and soul into this. I know, but written, John, what are you saying directed. about Cinderella? <laughs> uh... <laughs> Sorry, I haven't seen Cinderella, but based on the trailers, it looks like he was—he did it while uh, taking a nap. <laughs> <laughs> no, Thor Ragnarok, or not Thor, uh, Thor. That was his like uh, phoning it in performance, like yeah. literally just Dutch angle everything. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. He was listening. He was falling asleep. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But no, this movie I found it thoroughly entertaining. It's a nice little, you know. Uh, murder mystery. <laughs> I was trying to think of a better way to put it. <laughs> Let's yeah. just call it what it is. Let's call it spade a spade. Well, yeah, it's a, it's a traditional. Mystery. Yeah, it's a traditional murder mystery. I mean, come mm-hmm. on. If Chamber. you don't know, if you don't know the story, of the murder of the or- on the Orient Express. I mean, come on. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he stars as Hercule Poirot, the world's Ecu greatest Perot, pitcher. John. Mm-hmm. I'm help you. Ecu, from the back of the throat. Perot. <laughs> <laughs> but he does not say lines, and uh, he's playing him. To the rafters. He's playing mm-hmm. them very broad. Um, not very likable, which I think is, uh, again, a good choice. Which yeah, is what I mean, which is what you need to do with these. Again, he's the, he's a genius, but he's also a jerk. Okay. Which a is co- what A you, complicated genius. Like, exactly. Which like is what Dr. Gregory House. <laughs> if only there was a, some other world-famous detective you could compare him to. Yeah, hmm. I can't think I of think one. Dr. Gregory House is probably the best. <laughs> yeah, it's the, best. It's, a, it's the analogy for our times. <laughs> But, again, he, when it comes to his director style, he obviously is attracted to fancy sets, fancy costumes, broad performances, and the camera's always moving, it's sweeping, he does these very intricate long takes, and, you know, obviously the story is well held up, it's respected, uh, with the exception of a few kind of key scenes. There's this weird, the only problem with the movie is it doesn't really know how to do, like, an act break. It's trying to do like these kind of like beginning, middle, and end, but doesn't really know how to bridge the two. So all of a sudden, it's just like, ah, oh, of course, this has to do with the Armstrong kidnapping. Like, what? Why? <laughs> and then before the third act, we have this like poultry little gunfight scene, and then he's just like dusts himself off. All right, fuck this. I figured this out. Let's go. <laughs> and then he solves the mystery. <laughs> so it really jumps the rails, so okay. to speak. Ao, ao, train metaphors. Yeah, but I think it's a lot of fun. Yeah. Well, how are the rest of the performances? Because they've they got a top flight cast for this one. Um, pretty good. Again, like everyone's playing it a bit cartoonish, but mm-hmm. for a kind of good reason. Like Michelle Pfeiffer is probably the most over the top. But then when you actually realize the nature of her character, it makes total sense why she would play it that way. Um, again, this is basically a filmed play, so everyone's kind of like playing with good diction and oh, look at this, you know. Yeah. Um, Judy Dench is putting on like a really bad Russian accent because she's like some kind of Russian aristocrat. Yeah. And well, how's Johnny Depp as the gangster? <laughs> <You know? laughs> well, again, the guy it. always chomping on a steak, you know. <laughs> yeah, exactly, like Mister Puro, I want to hire you to be my bodyguard. <laughs> you know, again, everyone's playing it very broad, but mm-hmm. since it's by design, you can't like fault it for it. Okay, I, I, again, this movie it felt like it was made for me. So how can I, like again? <laughs> It was like coming out of it, it wasn't written on a screenplay, it was written in my dream journal. So yeah. <laughs> So if you find your tastes aligned with John Which if you're a genius, they really should. <laughs> then maybe you'll enjoy Murder on the Orient Express. Mm-hmm. And a sequel's already been greenlit. I think Murder yeah, on the Nile is the next one there. How? Okay. Yeah. I guess Look. was that was that their plan all along? Launch a a cinematic series with Kenneth Branagh and I think so yeah, I think so. They're trying to go for a more kind of a thinking man, Sherlock Holmes. Yeah, a, a pre- and then what? A prequel series with I don't know who the, who would his equivalent be, uh, John Krasinski or something like that. <laughs> Young Akio Poirot. He's too busy playing Jack Ryan. He can't. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. He needs to be British. Ooh, they should get that uh, kid from Broadshirt. No, I don't know. Nah, fuck it. Just cut that out. <laughs> 
Well, John, I have a very special spotlight, particularly oh. for you. Okay. It won't mean anything to the audience, but I'm going to explain it anyway. A web series, mm-hmm. or let's just say a series of short videos that we have, is celebrating its 10th anniversary, John. <gasps> 10th year. Okay. Yes, even though it's, uh, it's, it's host, um, which is a magazine, which has gone through a lot of transitions <laughs> over those 10 years. <laughs> it's not in print anymore, but it's still technically a website, and they don't have a staff anymore, but still, they're hosting <laughs> this beloved web series of ours. It's literally the only thing they host anymore. <laughs> yes. And still, that just shows how long it's persisted, and it's, and it's overall quality. There have been, what I'm speaking to is... There have been just a number of, of uh, video game reviews on the web, mm-hmm. but none have persisted quite like Zero Punctuation. Of course. By Benjamin Yahtzee Croshaw. Now, again, going back to the archives, this is the second time we've spotlighted him, because I spotlighted one of his novels yes. a few months ago. So, if you, were, if you recall us discussing him back then, then you're in good company. Absolutely. And now, this... It, this series of uh, video game reviews which he does with the uh, little stick figures mm-hmm. with a yellow backdrop. Again, his trademark I, I suppose. But the reason I want to spotlight is because they are just celebrating their 10th anniversary. He's been doing this for over 10 years. Mm-hmm. And again, he's, he's stayed brilliant that whole time. He hasn't really changed at all. Like the, <laughs> They even have the same theme song <laughs> for about nine of those years. Mm-hmm. So again, I, th- I think it just it's a testament to its quality and, and how like a uh, just not only how hilarious, how hilarious, but also apt his criticisms are. Mm-hmm. For those kind of uninitiated, he is British, British-born. Mm-hmm. Uh, he talks very fast, and he obviously hates everything. Yeah. <laughs> so that's kind of the level we're dealing with, but that doesn't mean that his criticisms aren't unfounded. No, exactly. Yeah, I mean, when he says he hates everything, I, I think he's justified it before. Like, yeah, he's a critic. He's supposed to criticize. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's very true. Yeah. And again, adding with the whole kind of erudite persuasion with the British accent, it all kind of fits. It all kind of comes together quite perfectly. Yeah, and again, hysterical with his little stick figure animations, very rudimentary mm-hmm. animations. Like, it, he still has some hilarious sight gags. Mm-hmm. And it some blue has... material, too. Yeah, sorry, don't show it to the kids. <laughs> no, no, still plenty of times for dick and pussy jokes. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> and maybe too much, but... <laughs> um, another reason I want to spotlight it now is because he just came off um, doing a review of Assassin's Creed Origins. Mm-hmm. And it also just demonstrated in the 10 years like how much video games has changed, have changed. Mm-hmm. And he basically said of the current state of video games, it's, it was actually kind of shocking. He just says, like, I'm so sick of this. Because <laughs> AAA video games have essentially become like little slot machines in that you just do these little quests and there's no cohesive story behind them. Nope. It's and just an just, excuse yeah. for you to pull that lever and keep get. Oh, hopefully you'll get the grand jackpot. But you yeah, never and get do. those little libidinal. Yeah, just that those uh, little bites of endorphins when you accomplish a small goal or mm-hmm. get your little loot box or you know get to put a different hat on your character. Exactly. And yeah, sure, that's where kind of the economy of video games is going. But you know, maybe it'll come back to have story-based games. You know, more tailored to single experiences rather than you know <laughs> online, <laughs> online from some separate home from some kid who's going to call you gay or whatever but (laughs) (laughs) well again there's still a market for that that's just kind of the niche market yeah for the mass consumers for the fat americans eating cheeseburgers and cheetos (laughs) well that's my loot boxes give me my open sandbox yeah (laughs) that's another thing i wanted to credit him for is um a lot of a lot of the other video game review shows that have come and gone over these last 10 years Mm -hmm. they've focused a lot on retro reviews Mm-hmm. And I'm actually thankful that he he only does that maybe once or twice a year. Yeah, uh, talking about a video game he really admires, or in some cases not. But <laughs> um, when he does do them, he really kind of brings in the full history of video games. But also, when there isn't a big you know AAA title to review, instead he will find an interesting indie game and still you know treat it with the same fairness. <laughs> By that I mean negativity <laughs> that he would uh, uh, a very popular and and hugely selling game. Mm-hmm. It's open season. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, so, again, ten years. I, I think He's been doing this for ten years, a decade. I know. I know, and it's just a testament to how great it is. So mm-hmm. I encourage anybody, even though we're kind of outgrowing <laughs> video games and and this kind <laughs> well, of no, that's the thing. We've never been quote unquote gamers. We've never. I, we've oh no, we haven't played. We haven't played ninety five percent of the games that he's reviewed. <laughs> no, the last like video game we played together was like Minecraft. So yeah. <laughs> 
is our certain level of gamer. So, yeah. but I mean, they're still hilarious. They're still fun, and I still watch it every week. As mm-hmm. as do I. So, mm-hmm. and we encourage you to do the same. Mm-hmm. Go wait, check out the wait. back catalog. He also just did a, a review of the most recent Sonic game, <laughs> and those are reliably entertaining because of how inept those games are. So, <laughs> check them all out. Exactly. But but Greg, I, I've noticed that our listeners are, are are currently online right now. They're probably on the internet. They're probably connected to the internet somehow. You think so? Yeah. Okay. And I, I thought just... this was being transmitted straight to their brains because they got the <laughs> special implant. Well, one day, one day, one day. Okay. Mm-hmm. Since they're already online, I'm I'm racking my brain trying to figure out other things they can do while they're there. And well, gosh darn it, wouldn't it be great if they just went to Twitter and gave us a follow, or maybe went to Facebook and liked our Facebook page? Absolutely, we're there. I mean, just mm-hmm. type in aspiring snobs. I mean, we're pretty much the only ones. We're the only game in town. No, yeah, we're we're one of the few podcasts. So please, yeah. <laughs> Speaking of which, you should probably subscribe and give us a rating on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever. Yes, absolutely. Help more people find the show. Mm-hmm. And we'll cast the bigger net. We'll be, we'll become fisher of men and women. <laughs> And then also, if you have a comment or recommendation, you can always reach out to us through email at aspiringsnobs at gmail.com. Yes. Actually, I, I do have a question for our, our audience. I was wondering how they feel about the, the spate of black and white movies we've reviewed recently. And just wondering what, what kind of you know, movies are, the, are our audience seeking? Are they seeking you know, more recent classics, uh, contemporary classics, or do they want us to go all the way back to the 30s, 40s, you know, way back there? Um judging by the slate of podcast related movies i don't think anyone wants us to do anything older than 1980 so <laughs> okay probably a bad question to ask okay but you know john maybe that's how we separate ourselves that's true that's yeah. our niche we're yep. the we're the small little indie podcasters that's what we are yeah, truly mm. one of a kind take that gimlet <laughs> thank you gimlet <laughs> what is gimlet it's a podcast network okay <laughs> don't well come on john we need a podcast network to launch our planet to launch ourselves let's you know if, ne- if no if, if they're coming knocking i'm gonna say no okay <laughs> wow okay yeah all right i've got too much integrity for that <laughs> sure <laughs> oh god <laughs> i do <laughs> so poor yeah give, give, give me a call <laughs> we'll, we'll talk we'll hash it out leave john out of it if we need a new co-host then i will i will gladly <laughs> find one <laughs> how dare you how dare you <laughs> I know that's not happening. <laughs> what, nor is nor is a partnership with Gimlet. <laughs> what are we watching next week? Oh, you already know what it is. I do. This is my pick. <laughs> I'm so excited. Yes, to celebrate our Jewish sisters and brothers mm-hmm. in the first week of Hanukkah, we're watching one of the great uh, classics about Judaism: The Ten yeah. Commandments. No, not really. <laughs> that would be a good one. Yeah. No, we're going to be watching Fiddler on the Roof. Yes, I'd never seen it before. It's um, John. You 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 seem to have some affection for this movie. <laughs> a fiddler on the roof, crazy, no? <laughs> oh, well, you got that to look forward to next week. <laughs> tradition. Yes. Tradition. But until then, until then, subscribe tradition. on every podcast. Leave us a review. Tradition. Tradition. I'm not gonna send stop. us a recommendation at aspiringsnobs at gmail dot com. And until next week, everybody, have a good week. <laughs> And keep aspiring. Tradition, tradition, tradition.